Uh, welcome to the class. If this is your first time here, um, thanks for coming and joining us. I, I, I believe then if this is your first time, then possibly you were out because of sickness or something last week, and I'm thankful that you're at least doing better. Um, we do have a clipboard uh, sign-up that I uh, sent around last week uh, just to get everybody's names. If you've already signed it, you can just pass it on. Um, but to get uh, either a couple, you as a couple or individual, put your name and your email address um, so that I can send you information regarding the class. Um, did everybody that signed up, did you receive the emails uh, Monday or so uh, with the information? Very good. Okay. If you did not, let me know, and I'll try and figure out what's going on there. But um, in that email, uh, you should have received an outline uh, from the uh, last week's lesson, as well as the uh, principles, um, the pondering the principles uh, worksheet. Uh, so that was something that everybody uh, should have been able to work through this week, uh, either individually or as or with your spouse. And um, hopefully you were able to take the time to do that. Um, then also I shared with you the appendices um, that go, go along with this. Um, if you didn't get um, that, I will get that to you, um, if this is your first week especially. And so uh, it, the appendices, I can also print you a copy. Um, only uh, 25 bucks, so just kidding. Um, but I am happy to get, uh, get you a copy, a hard copy, if you're like me and want to open it and mark and, and draw um, uh, on that. That's completely fine as well. It's just let me know if you need a copy, and I'll get those printed. Um, but uh, one, one note on that, I'll be sending you an additional appendice this coming week. Uh, we're going to cover at the end of tonight uh, because it was actually not included in that scan uh, that I sent you. It's actually appendix number five. So if you're going through them and saying, wait, where is appendix number five? Because I know all of you read them this past week. Um, uh, I will make sure that you uh, get that included this time. Well, uh, let's go ahead and uh, bow in a word of prayer. Ask the Lord to help us uh, during this time with this important content. Lord, uh, you are so kind to um, provide for us uh, such a sweet opportunity to gather as the body uh, to uh, present these truths to one another. Thank you for the privilege to be able to uh, glean the knowledge from this uh, that you've provided for us in the, in the lesson and materials, and then um, now to be able to share it with these, um, with these families. And uh, thank you for their faithfulness to uh, even just the desire uh, to further their knowledge and understanding of parenting, uh, but not just a knowledge of parenting, but most importantly, a knowledge of what you have called them to do, the responsibility that, th that you have given them um, with uh, such a precious, um, uh, uh, a precious gem uh, as children. And uh, Lord, even as we'll discuss tonight, uh, they are sinful and, and wicked, and at times we see that uh, worse than others, and yet you have called us to love them and care for them and uh, to raise them uh, in faithfulness and to raise them to love you, uh, to fear you, um, and to ultimately glorify you with their lives. Uh, help us to understand how to do that well um, as we study tonight, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, uh, just a quick uh, reminder of what we covered last week. Last week, our main objective was uh, looking at how the Bible provides uh, teaching that is comprehensive uh, for parenting. So everything that you need to know about parenting um, is found, at least parenting the soul and the heart and 
um, all those qualities of the child is found uh, in the Bible. And parents must look at God's truth and his work in their entire lives. Parenting is not really an entity unto itself. That's what we said. And we looked at how, uh, first we were looking at the parents' priorities. The parents' priorities, and they're found in four commitments. The first commitment was a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. So looking at your relationship with God in light of who you are, or who you are in light of who he is. And so um, what what is your heart like? Who are you? Uh, according to what God's word says. And so first we must be committed to the word of God, and then we must be committed to the God of the word. We said that last week. Uh, Second was a commitment uh, to your spouse, your relationship, your honor of your spouse, committed to the uniqueness of the marriage relationship, committed to your biblical roles. Uh, Third, we looked at um, briefly, we actually... Uh, mainly focused our attention and time on those first two um, uh, two commitments, the Lord Jesus Christ and then your spouse. But third and fourth, we uh, briefly touched on the commitment to our family. And then lastly, the commitment to others, that being the church specifically, and then as a result, also the world. Um, so that's just a brief review. And the key principle that we focused on last week was the strength of our devotion and commitment to Christ will determine the effectiveness of the other three commitments. So, in other words, how committed you are to the Lord Jesus Christ and your relationship uh, with him is going to determine your commitment to your spouse, to your family, and to others. So prioritizing that is of utmost importance. So, uh, again, that's just a brief um, overview, general overview of what we covered last week. And again, if you um, uh, will write down uh, your contact information, your email, I'll, sign, I'll send this information to you that we covered last week as well. Well, tonight, in addition to the parents' priorities, uh, we need to discuss the parents' goal. And if you look at your outline, you'll see kind of the main points that we are going to try and cover tonight with the time that we have. And so we are going to be looking at the parents' um, the parents' goal. In the parents' goal, uh, God has provided uh, principles in the Bible and the Holy Spirit's power to enable Christian parents to, to meet the primary goal for all believers in regard to every endeavor of life, including their families. So whatever you do, um, all, do that all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians uh, 10.31. Uh, in 2 Peter 1, Verses 2 through 4, it says, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And this knowledge spoken of by Peter is gained through an understanding of truths found in scriptures. So Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9 tells us that. And so God says that everything that we need for this life and for godliness is found in the scriptures. So that's just a reminder, even again, of prioritizing that relationship with the the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, the God of the Word. And so everything Christian parents need to know to raise their children in a godly manner is found in the Bible. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 uh, reads, um, and uh, is, would anybody be willing to look that up for me? Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, or maybe you could quote that for us. Uh, this is telling us that Scripture equips us equips us for every good work. 
Anybody? And I can read it. It's totally fine. I'll do that. 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16 through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that is showing that we are equipped for every good work, even just in this context, the the good work of parenting, of rearing children, so of raising children. Uh, Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so the unredeemed, they do not glorify God. Uh, we've been hearing Pastor Farrell preach on that for the last uh, several uh, several weeks. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23 tells us that. The unredeemed do not live to glorify God. They can benefit only superficially from the following biblical principles for the family under God's common grace. But the transforming power of biblical principles can only be understood realized and practiced with the blessing by those who belong to God by faith in his son. And this is really redeemed, uh, redeemed parents. Now, there are all kinds of things that we can do to try and achieve these goals, all kinds of things that we can read, that we can study, that we can practice in, in habits that we can try to play, put in place. But friends, that is not going to change Uh, the unredeemed flesh of a sinner. All of us have hopefully been exposed to enough scripture and enough teaching at some point in our lives to at least understand that. Uh, In theology, we understand this as the study of anthropology. You know, what is man? Who is man? And then ultimately, who is man in light of who God is and his holiness? The transforming power of biblical principles can only be understood, realized, practiced, and with blessing by those who belong to God. And 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And so if we were to take some time now and just to list out how is an individual saved? I'm sure we would hear all kinds of, of theories, all kinds of, of steps. You know, this is what they need to do. This is what they need to hear. This is who needs to tell them an instruction. And uh, here's even a simple prayer that they could pray to save them. But hopefully, uh, through by the end of the night, we're going to be talking through some of those principles. But it is a wonderful goal for us to set in our minds of, I desire for my children to be saved. I desire for my children to be saved. I mean, is that not a wonderful thing for a parent to desire, to pray for, to hope for? Well, I hope that that is the case for you. But friends, oftentimes we can take that desire, that hope, that prayer that we have in our minds and try and make it an achievement of our own. Like, I am going to be the best dad in the world. And because of that, I'm going to share the word with them. I'm going to pray with them. I'm going to show them every lesson that will hopefully make them good moral individuals, but also convict the heart so that one day they'll pray that Jesus will save them from their sins. Well, the scriptures tell us 
that those things to the natural man are foolishness. And so it is not the work by me as a parent or as a dad that is going to transform their hearts, but it is a work of a holy God who is going to draw them unto himself. Now, ultimately, we're going to learn and see that it is by means of those that he has put in their lives to instruct them, to share with them that truth. But it is ultimately the drawing of the Lord, the work of the Spirit in their heart, that will bring this spiritual appraisal. So, observance of all the principles we are learning will produce the most effective results when they are practiced in the home that follows God's design for the family. And in such a home, the the husband, the father, is the primary provider and leader. Uh, The wife, the mother's priority is to her home and to the family. We talked about this a little bit last Sunday. Well, not a little bit. We talked about it a whole lot last Sunday night. But there may be good intention to apply sound doctrine to family life. But many biblical promises and blessings will be forfeited um, uh, when parents fail to abide by these basic divine structures of roles and responsibilities. And so we may say for this, my ultimate purpose as a believer is to glorify God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. My ultimate purpose as a believer is to glorify God. Now here's the question. What is the goal of parenting so that we fulfill this ultimate purpose? What is the goal of parenting so that we feel this, uh, fill this ultimate purpose? Well, the goal of parenting is this. To be faithful, to be a faithful instrument in God's hands for actively bringing up my child according to biblical principles. The goal of parenting is to be a faithful instrument in God's hands for actively bringing up my child according to biblical principles. And so the goal is to be a faithful instrument, a faithful steward of, of the, the responsibility that God has given to us. And that is the key word here, and that is faithfulness. And so ultimately, that is what we are called to, is faithfulness. And all the time we are, we are in our own hearts and in our own minds, we are overwhelmed with this extreme desire to see fruit now and to strive and strive and strive. It's, it's, it's like being a, a gardener or someone who is out in the yard trying their hardest to get something to grow. And you're looking at it and you're plowing and you're digging and you're pruning and you're watering and you're putting fertilizer on it, giving everything that that plant is supposed to have and need. And yet everything you do, you, you don't see the fruit. And at some point, you, you just go crazy in your mind. I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do. And yet there's nothing happening. And at that point, you begin to want to give up. You begin to get frustrated. And you begin to say, Lord, I can't do this. And friends, that's where the ultimate reality is. It is a work of the Lord to bear the fruit of his work in their hearts. Not the ultimate goal of me to see me urge and, and pour into and call and call and call and hope and then hopefully this thing is going to bear fruit in my child. And so we are called to faithfulness. Be a faithful steward of what God has given you the responsibility of, but he has not given you the responsibility 
to bear that fruit from that child, to have that child say the sinner's prayer, to have that child have a transformed heart and life. That is ultimately up to the Lord. Don't do something that is a responsibility of God. Don't try and do something that is a responsibility of God. Well, this objective is based upon two factors. This objective of being a faithful instrument. And God's, that, those two factors are God's view of man and God's directions for parents. God's view of man uh, God's view of man is that man is not inherently good. Man is not inherently good. Um, I don't know about you, um, and I, I would say that for uh, the amount of parents that I've spoken to through my years of, of life, um, I can say that this is pretty consistent. But man, when you see that child for the very first time, and you hold that child in your arms... My immediate thought is not like, oh my, look at this wicked and depraved sinner. What have I gotten myself into? It's really not until I get the child home and the thing starts crying. Sorry, I said thing. The child starts crying in the middle of the night. That's my wicked and depraved nature. Um, uh, The child starts crying in the middle of the night. Uh, They're crying for their food. I'm not able to sleep. Really, it's just heightening all of my own sinful tendencies and showing my fallen nature. But I'm thinking, wow, what did I get myself into with this wicked, depraved thing? Here, yes, I said that again. Uh, Here... We are reminded that man is not inherently good. When I held Addison for the first time in the hospital, I'm thinking there could be nothing more precious in this world apart from my wife. There could be nothing more precious and lovely in this world. There could be nothing more good in this world than this child. But man is not inherently good. The scriptures tell us that. The scriptures tell us that. In contrast, note the views of really some in this world, uh, three well-known psychologists in this world, of how they want to view man. Now, all of you are going to know these these names, and I'm not trying to here make a point and set a a landmark, but uh, one being Freud. What does Freud say about man? He says man is an instinctual animal with two major instincts, love and and hate. And Freud also said, don't warp their personality by opposing the child's basic drives. Here, we, we are seeing that there is a need within this child, and we want to do everything to make them feel good about themselves. And so Freud is saying, hey, there's these instincts, you need to make sure you adjust and you accommodate so that they're going to feel good about themselves. What about Skinner? Skinner said, man is born a blank slate. Environmental programs, um, uh, uh, the environment programs this blank slate. Parents need only to manipulate the environment and thus condition the child. So all I need to do to make sure this child comes out and is a good person is I need to make sure the environment is great. I have all their Bible studies prepared. I have, when they wake up in the morning, we say our prayers. When, I go, uh, when we go to bed, we have everything. Bum, 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 bum. And I'm going to pray or I'm going to do whatever it is in my means to make sure that they are set up. The environment is perfect 
so that they'd come out to be this perfect child. Go back to that illustration of in the garden. I'm going to do everything to work on this plant. I'm going to put everything in this plant. I'm going to do all the things that the books tell me to do, that the perfect gardener in this world tells me to do. That's what Skinner is saying. I'd make sure the environment is great, and that will manipulate, that will condition the child to be a good child. Rogers says, Man is a flower that will unfold if he has the opportunity to self actualize we've heard a lot of that over these past few years the child is self-motivated because of inherent goodness man is basically a little god and if we give the child freedom to get in touch with his feelings and become self-actualized he will blossom so the natural man's goal is to feel good about himself and thus function better Thus, the self-esteem movement. This biblical, or this unbiblical perspective, has crept into the church and deceived many believers, even to this day. I'm just concerned about how this child feels and perceives themselves, and I'm going to do everything to manipulate or to make sure that they are happy in the situation that they are in, or to make sure that the outcome I get is what I'm hoping for, no matter what I have to do to get that outcome. One, uh, uh, one recommended book uh, by uh, some of these authors is uh, The Biblical View of Self-Esteem, Self-Love, and Self-Image by Jay Adams. This will give you some further reading. I'll share that again in the, uh, the handout uh, this coming week uh, to you all as a reference. But in direct contrast, God's view of man is not that he is good, but that man is inherently, what do you think? Okay? Man is inherently evil, wicked, depraved. R.C. Sproul joked one time talking about um, Calvin and what Calvin said about a child. And Calvin said that uh, these little babies that are coming into the homes are wicked little rats. Calvin said a whole lot of things. I don't know if that's the best one, but um, but R.C. Sproul joked, I want to talk to Calvin when I get to heaven because I'm appalled at what he said regarding the rats. He essentially is saying, you know, R.C. Sproul is saying, how could he uh, categorize a rat with such a wicked child? Uh, you know, saying that the rats are actually much better than a child who is able to do and function in all these ways. But ultimately, what are we looking at? Man is inherently evil. And the Bible gives clear evidence that everyone is a sinner. Everyone is a sinner. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who stands or who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Sin affects the whole being. Um, if, if we were to go through and read some examples of this, we would look at uh, the effect that sin has upon the will of man. John eight thirty four, Romans 7. I'll share some of these with you this week. The mind is affected and understanding is affected. 
by sin. Genesis 6-5, Romans 8-7. We are not able to think correctly, to make decisions biblically because of the effect that sin has upon us. The affections and our emotions are affected by sin. Romans 1, 24-27, 1 Timothy 6 tells us that. Our outward speech and behavior are affected by our sin. Friends, man is uh, holy, truly evil, according to what the scriptures say. No area or aspect of human nature is untouched by sin. Even when I try and express love to an individual, even when I try and be kind in certain ways, ultimately, in my old man's flesh, if you were to go back and look at what was my motivation in doing those things, a lot of the times you could see that it was sinful motivation. I was wanting something out of that circumstance. Therefore, I loved that individual in a way that hopefully I would get the right response. Going back to even some of those psychological uh, analysis. So no area or aspect of the human nature is untouched by sin. We oftentimes note this as total depravity. Total depravity. And not all sinners are equally evil, though. Not all sinners are equally evil. But all are utterly unable to rid themselves of the guilt of sin and establish an eternal relationship with God. So guilt is a position based upon actions taken or omitted, not just an emotion. It is not just emotion. Uh, if you uh, want to look at uh, the conscience and the understanding of the conscience, uh, Pastor Farrell has a wonderful series on the conscience and, and looking at um, how we um, deal with our guilt, our thinking, and right understanding. Uh, John MacArthur also has a book, The Vanishing Conscience, uh, that is very helpful in this area. But it is in this sinful condition that the child enters the world. So ultimately, we're bringing a child into this world, and we're already saying they are set up for failure. And friends, if it were up to us, that is really the reality They are destined for failure because in no way can I transform their minds to where they will ultimately conform to the image of Christ because of anything that I've done. But it is in the sinful condition that the child enters the world, but there is hope because of what God offers in return or in turn for that child to transform their hearts. A child need not be taught how to lie, to be selfish, or to do wrong. We understand it doesn't take us to set the example, even though oftentimes we do set the example for the child of how to be sinful. I didn't have to teach my child how to be angry. I didn't have to teach my child how to lie. I didn't teach my child how to be um, how to be selfish. That was something that was built into them automatically because of their sinful nature. These things rise naturally from the sinful heart. Psalm 58, verse 3. David leaves no doubt as to when this depravity begins. Even in the womb, there is an estrangement, a separation between God and man. And when that baby comes out of the womb, he will go astray, manifesting that sinfully bent heart at some point. It begins even in the womb. Psalm 51, verse 5. This verse doesn't mean that the act of 
of uh, intercourse uh, was sin, as if you read that, that passage. But since the Bible exalts the physical aspect of marriage, we understand that to not be the case. But it is saying that the very moment a human life is conceived, that life is a sinner by nature. Friends, what we're looking at here is how does God view man? How does God view man? It's not how does Matt view man? How does Matt view his child? Because it's almost as if we come into this world, or our child comes into this world, and it's like we, we know, we have good theology. Man, you guys are, are the one, most wonderful theologians in this world. You know all the aspects of, of the, uh, the sinfulness of man, the depravity of man, how we are fallen creatures, but it's almost instantaneous that we have this cloud or these glasses that are put on us, and we look at the child and think, Oh, my. This child is so nice, so kind, so gentle. Oh, listen to their coo. And we are just enamored to the point to where we we begin to think, surely, uh, okay, they cry a little bit. Okay, they did that to their brother or sister, but they're not that bad. Well, that goes back to the reality that we're not all, not all sinners are equally evil, but all are utterly unable to rid themselves of the guilt of sin. So as a child develops within the womb, he develops the physical and mental capacities capable of fulfilling the sinful intentions of his heart. And the fact that a child at times can think, speak, or even act in a way which is relatively good does not disprove his total depravity. Since this good can never approach the entire lifelong righteousness and perfect holiness by which he alone can stand before God. So every child is, is wholly fallen, hence wholly in need of redemption, so that he must be taught about God. He must be taught about God's nature, his nature, his law, God's law, his love, his forgiveness. And he must know and be shown from Scripture his sinful condition and its horrible effects in time and eternity, and that no external works or behaviors can earn him salvation. Friends, have you ever had a a moment where you're dealing with your child, you're correcting your child, you're disciplining your child, you're trying to help them see the sinfulness of their action, and they just get frustrated and they say, I can't help it. Have you ever seen that? Everybody should be shaking their head because I can almost say without a doubt that you've probably experienced that. If you haven't yet, it's going to come. If you haven't seen that, It will happen. I can't help it. And friends, that is great theology. That is great anthropology. I can't help the condition I am in. But that's not an excuse before God. Because God is a holy God in need of perfection even within that sinful child. Every child is wholly fallen and hence wholly in need of the redemption. That he must be taught about God and all these things. But there's no external works or behavior that can earn him that salvation, Ephesians 2 tells us. He must then be taught to trust in Jesus Christ as his own Savior and Lord. And the scripture teaches that the heart is in control, is the control center for life. How many of you are, uh, have been along, or have, 
Okay, I don't want to say how many of you are old. How many of you have lived long enough? Here we go. How many of you have lived long enough to where you, you remember NASA and Mission Control or Houston? And if, you've, if you're not that old and you may be seen Hollywood's depiction of Apollo 11, what's that famous line in that movie? Houston, Houston, we have a problem. I know parents, maybe some of you use that often with your own children. You say, Houston, meaning mom saying to dad or dad saying to mom, we have a problem. Well, that is because Houston was that control center. The rocket may have taken off out in Florida somewhere, but Houston was the ones that they were going to call and say, hey, we have an issue. We have a problem. What do we do here? How do we make this right? Well, here in our own lives, the heart is the control center for life. God declares that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. The root of evil is within the heart. We want to fulfill our own lust. James 1 verses 14 to 15 tells us that. Proverbs 4.23, a person's life is a reflection of his heart. Out of the overflow of the what? Out of the overflow of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. It's not that all of a sudden Ben decided, I'm going to go and put a bunch of junk in Matt's mouth or in Matt's mind, and therefore I'm going to regurgitate that because he did that to me. Not that you would ever do that. But here... It is in my own heart, my own sinfulness, my nature, that the abundance of that will be exposed. And so if you look at that, um, that appendice that I, I handed out to you tonight, here is a diagram that Carrie Hardy, uh, one of the creators of the curriculum that we're using, uh, one of the pastors of, of, uh, in the Expositor Seminary, um, this was a heart diagram that he created here looking at, at some of the, uh, the outer man and the inner man and out of that overflow of the heart, what is coming out, uh, the mission control and, and that the, the, all the intentions, the thoughts, the motivations, it, the affections, the will, the desires, they are what is inside. That is mission control. And so the issue in parenting is, is primarily internal, dealing with the child's heart, not only his behavior. That's where that famous um, parenting book uh, title comes from, Parenting What? A Child's Heart, right? Yeah. And so the parent's concern should be to, to help the child understand his sin uh, through exposure to God's law and how it reveals a heart that is deceitful and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. And so a child must understand that the tragic outcome of such sinfulness in this life and also future future punishment is hell. Helping a child identify that this in my own heart, this in my own life is, or the, the, the outcome of this sinfulness is an eternal future punishment in hell. And so a child must understand the tragic outcome of this in his sinful, sinful ways is that punishment. And such teaching leads to the cross of Christ. It leads to redemption. It, it underscores the need for the work of the Savior. So friends, every time that your child is dealing with these issues, you're going to go back to the heart and say that, no, it, it not, wasn't necessarily that your, your sister did this to you. 
the reason you responded the way that you did was because in your own heart, you wanted the authority. In your own heart, you really wanted that toy. Or in your own heart, you wanted to be happy. And that is a sinful response. And how do you overcome that sinful response? Um, I've got a couple of, um, of recommendations that I want to give you as far as books here. Um, I'll, maybe I'll wait till the end to do that. But it is, it's, it's helping us understand the work of salvation in the, in the child's life. And how can I begin to show them and shepherd them to help them see their depravity? And it's not that I'm going around and I'm saying, Addison, you're depraved. Everly, you're depraved. Get away from me, depraved individual. I'm not just constantly going around doing that. But... Um, I would not recommend that at all. But I'm going around and, I, and, I'm, and I'm correcting what has been done wrong and helping them see that, Addison, this was a response out of your own heart. It wasn't the fact that somebody was doing something wicked to you, even though that is, could potentially be the case. Your response still did not have to be evil in return. So parenting, therefore, must focus on Christ. It is concerned with the child's salvation and then his sanctification. Fathers and mothers need to lead their children to continually face up um, to their or fess up to their own sin and turn uh, to Jesus through faith in His shed blood and resurrection as their only hope. Friends, I will say one of the greatest ways that we as parents can help nurture and shepherd our children is to regularly go to them. Well, regularly, as in when you need to. But it's to go to them and say, dad was sinful in this moment. Or dad didn't handle this situation properly. Or mom, mom got out of control here. And she spoke in a way that was not honoring to the Lord. Or mom was not caring for you in a way that was honoring to the Lord. Will you forgive me? And then you sit there. Mom do that herself. I mean, you might. What's that? I want the mother to do that herself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I was not saying that I was the one saying mom did this and it was really bad. <laughs> yeah, I've never done that. Um, thanks, Jeff, for the clarification. <laughs> um, but make sure in those moments that you don't just say, I'm sorry for what I did. But you're saying, will you forgive me for this action done to you? And then ultimately you pray with that child not pray to the child, pray with that child to the Lord and say, God, will you forgive me for being sinful in this way, for, for treating my child, the one you entrusted to me, in this fashion? That is going to show them. It's going to model for them the way that they are to act in their response to their own sinfulness. So since Christian parenting is not just concerned with a child's behavior, but with his salvation and sanctification, what does the Bible tell us is the way we go about reaching our goal? So, okay, if this is the case, what do we do to reach the goal of this type of parenting? Well, we must understand God's view of man, and then we must look at God's directions to parents. God's directions to parents. Ephesians 6, 4 says, And fathers... Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And this is the, the directive which will help us reach our goal of being faithful biblical parents. Parents are not infallible, even though sometimes we like to think that. Parents are not infallible, but 
they are the child's primary God-given authority and source of training. Proverbs 4 tells us that. This has always been the pattern. So the essence of God's directions in Ephesians 6, 4, we have the key phrase, bring them up. Bring them up. And this term means to rear, to bring to maturity, to provide and support. And here in Ephesians 6, 4, it would convey tenderly caring for the child by providing what the child needs to grow to maturity. Namely, what children need are discipline and instruction. And in the Greek language here, this is in the active voice. You parents bring them up. Um, it is not the, the passive voice, which, which sounds like you children be brought up by the environment of Sunday school, by the environment of adventure club, by the environment of a Christian education, or, or all the, the inputs that you could put in that area. It isn't a middle voice. The children bring yourselves up. Proverbs 22, verse 6 also says, train them up. And it is in the active voice. So the worldly man's elevated view of himself shows him as a parent to be passive because it denies the depravity of the child. He doesn't see the need to do much. Even as we as Christians may say we believe in the depravity of children, our parenting may not always reflect that. Remember what I said earlier, that it seems like oftentimes our parenting is coming through the lens of these some unnatural glasses that are saying, well, my child's not that bad. It's, they're, 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 they're okay. They're sweet and they're considerate. They're gentle. But friends, we have to keep in mind that these are uh, depraved individuals. I am a depraved individual apart from Christ. But the Bible doesn't teach that the child is neutral that any aspect of his desire to please himself or rule himself is morally neutral. He is sinful. Romans 3 tells us that. It takes work, therefore, on the part of the parent to, to bring them up. It is active. You parents bring them up. There is no place in Christian thinking for a passive parent. Friends, it is hard. It is a hard work. It is a battle. You're probably saying, duh, Matt, I know, I've raised my kids, or I'm doing this right now. It is not easy. It is a fight. Um, there's even a book called a Brave Dad, MacArthur um, um, authored, but uh, I would recommend that to you. But this is something you have to go into the battle ready, but with the right tools, with the right motivation, and with the right plan set before you and God has given us everything that we need for that so there's no no place for a passive parent a passive parent lacks wisdom fails to study God's word and fails to pray as instructed friends we have to pray and pray and pray and pray for our children to pray for our spouse to pray for uh, ourselves as we engage with our children we have to pray in the moments that it is most difficult when you haven't slept for 18 months and you're wondering what in the world is going on and you are so lost that you don't know what's up from down and you think this child is demon-possessed and I have no idea what the Lord wanted me to do. 
I can't say that I've experienced that. That was a lie. But you are in that moment and you tell your spouse, this is not truth. This is truth. This is what God wants us to do for this child. God, yes, we are so tired right now. We are so famished in spiritual needs. We have no idea what is up from down in a spiritual sense. But God has called us to raise this child and to shepherd them with gentleness and meekness and with all love and compassion that he would show to us. And he will provide us with everything we need. So husband, don't be passive. Wife, don't be passive. Shepherd yourselves during this time as well. This passive approach to parenting results in many excuses such as it's a passing stage. It, it, the child will grow out of it. Blame it on the circumstances. Wait, wait a while. See what changes. Circumstances will change most likely. Sickness, well, the child can't comply, be, can't comply to the objective because they're sick, they're ill. Demons, they're everywhere. It's not really a joke. I mean, uh, in all seriousness, that, that is often what we think in our own minds, that we've got to get an exorcism in this house. Some syndrome or disorder. If you want to have a helpful understanding of, of the world's understandings of syndromes and disorder, uh, Dr. Hager, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Hager can help you understand it even more thoroughly of the understanding. What's the module, the MIT? Mark, I'm talking to you. Uh, what's, the, what's the MIT that, uh, that helps understand? 103. 103. MIT 103. Take that class. Take that course. Take the other ones, too. But take that course, and it will help you understand the syndromes, the disorders of this world, and you will help be, be set up well for when you come to parenting. And people try to say, oh, well, they're probably dealing with um, OCD, or they're dealing with um, uh, oppositional defiance, you know, all of these kinds of things that they like to tell us so that we can say, oh, well, yeah, it's really not my fault, or it's really not their fault. They're just dealing with this in their own way. Um, Set yourself up. Educate yourself to help you understand what's going on. Become, we become passive because of our own sin, because of our own wrong thinking. We don't want to put forth the effort. We're lazy. I am lazy. I will admit to that. I love to work, and I, I try and work hard. But, friends, when it comes to parenting, I come in the door from work. I come in the door from a long day, maybe counseling with people, maybe just trying to do administration, figure out the, the schedules for nursery and all the other things going on. And I come home, and Jackie's saying, oh, man, this has gone wrong. This has happened. Just giving you a, a report of what the day has been like. I need you to go and spank so-and-so, and I need you to go take this one and give them to the government because there's no hope. <laughs> And, and all this is happening in this moment, and I'm thinking, oh, can I just go lay down for a little bit? <laughs> can I just go take a breather? Can I go mow the lawn? I mean, that's, that's the reality. I would much rather go mow the lawn and rake leaves, which I, I don't really like raking leaves. I don't mind mowing the lawn. But all those things, I would much rather do that than deal with this situation. Yeah, that is a passive way of doing it because I am my own heart. I'm saying, oh. I don't want to deal with it. Let somebody else do it. We're too busy with getting ahead in our own business and our own hobbies. We're too busy with ministry in the church. 
a refusal to believe the facts. My child could never do something like that. After all, we're a Christian family. Many times this is seen in Sunday school or in the Christian school. Nah, my kids will never do that. You know, we have devotions every night. We pray all the time. They watch Veggie Tales every day. Come on. They know Larry and Bob. We're totally surprised. We're too stunned to respond. We excuse poor behavior because we think it's cute. We think they're, they're too young to learn. Man, it's so hard sometimes. I will admit, it is hard sometimes. My child does something, and Jackie and I will look at each other trying not to laugh because we know that was wicked and from the devil. And, and we're, but at the same time, we're thinking, that was pretty funny in my sinful flesh. And, that is, and we have to const- uh, restrain, not constrain, we have to restrain one another from, from showing that, that, that side. It, it, it's not cute, friends. Sinfulness is never cute. It's never something to laugh at. It's never something to, to joke about. Even sometimes we think they're too young to learn. Don't be deceived. Success in one area of life, maybe it's your business, maybe it's school, maybe it's, you know, you're just, you're just an awesome weightlifter. Maybe you're just um, the... Uh, the best mom when it comes to um, uh, doing crafts and fixing things with your kids. But success in one area of life does not guarantee success in parenting. David was a king, a man after God's own heart, yet he is, sad, he is a sad example of being a passive, preoccupied parent. Three situations with uh, three different sons are recorded by Samuel for us. And David is considered a great king, a military man, a musician, and yet a poor father. Second Samuel chapter 13, uh, Amnon rapes Tamar, and David does nothing, so Absalom kills Amnon. Second Samuel 15:19, Absalom tries to take the kingdom, thus David reaps more consequences of his sin. First Kings uh, chapter 1, David did not oppose Adonijah, who now says he will be king. We must actively pursue the task of bringing up our children, particularly dad. Not saying that mom's role isn't crucial. Proverbs chapter 1 says it is. Proverbs 31 says it is. But the use of the plural in Ephesians 6, 4 depicts her as being involved in in parenting. Practically speaking, she is with the children more. But dads sometimes need extra encouragement. Why? Because dads tend to neglect their duty. Dads tend to be timid in this area. They abdicate the role to others. Dads are directly accountable to God due to his, to, due to his structure of headship. And dads tend to think their work is over when they arrive home. And some said that some dads need a reminder over the door when they come home and say, you are now entering the mission field. (laughs) Friends, I I remember being uh, in one of the classes, and um, uh, Dr. Matt Waymeyer was talking about one of his practices uh, when he comes home. I'm upset because I don't practice this well, even though I know it. And I've told Jackie that I try try to do this, but uh, a lot of times before Matt comes home, uh, Dr. Waymeyer comes home, he will call his wife, and he'll say, how are things going? 
uh, yeah, how, how was the day? And it's kind of like, give me a, a debriefing. Give me a report. What's the status of things at home? So that he can prepare his mind and himself as he's on his way home so that when he gets home, he is ready for that engagement. He's already prepared rather than listening to the next podcast or listening to the radio station. He's preparing mentally for the next thing. The role of a discipler, the role of a parent is never over. In addition to being active, bring them up is in the present tense. This conveys continuous action. He continuously, be continuously bringing them up. Keep at it. Don't stop. Parenting is work. But if we do it continuously, it is manageable. If we wait until later... When we are ready, or when we think our children are ready, the sheer number of issues that need to be addressed will be overwhelming. We have four children. I told you at the beginning, last class, who who my children are, how old. Uh, We have everything from a two-year-old toddler to a nine-year-old. And uh, all of you that are parenting teens, you're like, uh, just wait. Yeah, okay, I will. Uh, um, I'll I'll be preparing now. But... Jackie and I are constantly looking back and thinking, man, nine years already, just in a flash. And we're saying, man, we wish we had prepared 15 years ago for where we are now. I have couples coming to me now, people that aren't even married yet. They're coming to me saying, Matt, what, what would you recommend we read for parenting? What would you recommend we start practicing now for parenting? And I say, bless the Lord. Bless you, God. Bless you, individual, because you, it may be well with you because you are seeking these truths because you need to be equipped for this good work that God has called you to. You are actively being brought up into the understanding of what you are to do. It's a continuous struggle, a continuous bringing up of this child. Keep at it. It's, it's a hard work. And we say, man, I wish I had known. And we're doing things differently with Oliver than we did with Alethea and with Everly and, and Addison. And we're realizing what worked with Addison doesn't work with Oliver and so on. And we're thinking, man, how could this get any worse, you know, in certain situations? But then we think, how could this kid be so cute in other situations? And I don't want to spank him because I know that this is going, you know, what is this potentially going to do? But yet I have to because this is what I'm commanded to do. Parenting is work. But if we do it continuously, it is manageable. I'm sure that we have nobody in here that has ever procrastinated. I can raise my hand and say that I have procrastinated. So if you need an example, look at me. I have procrastinated. I have waited until later, and then I realize I'm reading through the syllabus. What is the expectation? Because all this is barreling down on me, and I have this to present, this to do, and oh my goodness, I am not prepared for what's happening. And that is what happens in parenting. It just escalates and snowballs and snowballs to the point of, I don't know if there's any hope. Friends, we, we serve a, a miraculous God that, is, that brings hope in every situation. He is able to do abundantly and above all else that we could ever imagine. If we wait until later when we are ready or we think our children are ready, the sheer number of issues that we need to address will be overwhelming. Friends, you wouldn't, you wouldn't wait until your child is 18 year old, or an 18-year-old to start teaching them the alphabet 
So why do we wait until a child is seven or eight or nine or ten to begin to really discipline them and help them see their sinfulness? Why do we wait until that age to help them practice prayer? When they are infants, when, when they are toddlers, model for them, show them the ways that, that, that you should do those very things. And they will see the habits. They will see the repetition. And they will begin to follow that as well. Not that that promises uh, a, a godly outcome, but at least you are being faithful to what God has called you to do. Little by little, parents are either striving to be faithful instruments in God's hands, bringing up their children according to biblical principles like Deuteronomy 6, or they are neglecting this responsibility through passivity. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 30 through 34, the field of the sluggard is an an amazing example of what that passivity will bring. Passivity or laziness is condemned in scripture. Bring them up is active, continuous, and finally, it is an, an imperative, a command. It is not a choice. This is not friendly advice or a suggestion. If you would like to, or if psychology books agree that parents should, or if grandparents agree, or if I were you, or if convenient or easy, or if what the so-called experts say, it's not about that. God commands parents to bring up their children. He gives them the authority. We need no one else's permission. He's given us everything we need, and he's expecting you to follow through and be faithful with it. But friends, he's leaving the fruit up to himself. It's not about what I'm doing, what I'm doing, because I'm going to bear the fruit in that child. The Lord will do that work. You be faithful to what he's called you to do. Second, the execution of God's directions. We're running out of time, so I'm going to just do an overview of this point. But the execution of God's directions, two key words in Ephesians 6.4, we must understand in order to fulfill God's directions are discipline and instruction. Discipline. This word has, has more than one use in the Greek. In the context of Ephesians 6.4, it can be best explained under the general hitting of training. Parents are to systematically train their children. The methods or the tools used to fulfill the intent of this term include rules, guidelines, restrictions, rewards, correction, and structure. Rules, guidelines, restrictions, rewards, correction, and structure. It is this training that establishes a framework upon which good habits of wise living can be built. Parents must examine areas of a child's life such as his daily routine, use of time and relationships and responsibilities in order to help their child learn what are wise choices and behaviors. You are setting the example now for what they will do for the next 20 years of their lives and ultimately for the rest of their lives. That's why we call this parenting for life. You are setting the example now. One, you are either setting the example now of how they will do these things and it will be profitable for them, or you're setting the example now and it is going to be to their damnation, to their detriment, ultimately. So what are you going to choose to do when it comes to that, uh, those routines, those responsibilities, those ways of living? A practical outworking of a child's depravity is his naivety. 
Proverbs chapter 1, verse 4. Children lack understanding. They're gullible, many times rushing headlong into evil. They don't know how to use their time wisely. Thus, children need parents to bring them up, to train them how to live in a prudent manner. Um, uh, I'll recommend another book uh, next week uh, that will be helpful for this, uh, Prudence and the Millers. You can look that up online. It's a title. Um, it's very helpful. I'd recommend that. But here, you're not going to say, I'm not going to go in and I'm going to say, all right, Oliver, come on, climb out of your crib. It's time for you to get your day started. Go do your stuff that you're supposed to do. He's two years old. I can't just expect him to go and just get it, go along his day and go to the bathroom, go change his own diaper, go down and get his breakfast. And he would probably try to do all that, but it's not going to be good for any of us. So I can't expect him to do those things. That's why God has given me the responsibility to do that. I set up the time. I set up the routine. I set up, well, I do sort of. Jackie does a lot. Um, But she will set up. I do some. Yeah, I can't take credit for most of that. But she is working hard to do all those things to make sure they are setting the example. She is setting the example. But then I come in and I encourage and I say, Addison, you you look at your list this afternoon. Have you gone? Have you uh, unpacked your lunchbox? Because tomorrow, if you don't unpack your lunchbox now, you're going to have a really nasty cup of over... uh, grown yogurt in your in your uh, lunchbox and that's going to be really bad or you know everly have you gone and put your stuff away your backpack your books because otherwise your brother's going to run through and he's going to trip over that and he's going to hurt his head again everly arlathia doesn't want to see stitches remember so let's not do that all right so all these kinds of things setting the example i come in i encourage as a husband i say this is how we are going to live And this is how God expects us to do this for your blessing, ultimately. A very important point to remember is um, when it comes to the discipline process, when it comes to um, putting these things to practice, is discipline is not only for the purpose of shaping a child's behavior. It is also a means by which a parent points a child to his need for Christ. And when a child fails to live up to the standards which he is taught, it is an opportunity to explain his need for a savior. Uh, the appendice number four, parenting in the Old Testament law. I would recommend you reading that. That's going to be on your, your homework for this week. Parenting and the Old Testament law, appendice number four. But a further note about one very important aspect of training. Oh, man, I got I to gotta be done. <laughs> Correction, why haven't you guys left yet? Um, correction, Mark Hager, where are you? Yeah, yeah. There's another day. I need somebody to say, Matt, let's do this, okay? I just, okay, thanks, thanks, Jeff. All right. Uh, yeah, okay. Actually, you know what? I'm going to cut it. Because <laughs> there's no way that I'm going to share with you these truths, and I, I think we've... Uh, overflowed the cup a little bit already tonight anyway so um uh that was not a smooth landing i hope you guys had your buckles on and and uh your life life preserver we went into the water very quickly there so um we're going to uh finish uh with a a quick prayer and then i'm gonna let you go get your kids please 
Lord, thank you uh, for blessing us with this truth. Thank you for the faithfulness of these individuals. Bless them this week as they go out to encourage one another, to uh, spur one another onto love and good works as spouses, as friends in this church, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for the power and the ability and the knowledge to do this. We need your help more than anyone else. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.